the first bullet point on our website of what we believe is we renounce religious coercion or the forcing of conscience in any way. So um, I, I think the number one notion that I've heard when it comes to this topic of, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, the, 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 the way that we live, the way that we dress, the way that we um, do Christianity is somebody's got to be making you do it. You know, the kids can't be that well behaved. Somebody's got to be, you know, making that happen behind the scenes. The women don't re don't really want to dress that way. You know, there's all these like there's got to be some forcing or coercion going on in order for this to be as clean cut as it is. You know, there's there's a, you, you can take Mormons or Muslims or, you know, there's there's all kinds of people groups that can have very good behavior. So when you start talking about fruit, but the fruit. I mean, the, the Bible, the scriptures tell us, Jesus himself said that we will be known by our fruit. But it's like, yeah, but anybody can fake the fruit kind of thing, you know. No, and I mean, can. the kids are amazing and, 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 and you know, the, everyone seems submissive and all these things are great. But somebody must be making them do if it. Anybody, what do you say to that? If anybody can fake the, tr the fruit, then Jesus lied. Amen. Amen. He said he drew a distinction between fruit and appearances. Amen. So he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, there's appearances, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them. So anyone who is faking fruit, you will know it. You will know that that is an appearance, but that is not the reality. It does not come from the heart. So we have to make a distinction between fruit and appearances, because we can certainly agree that sheep's clothing are appearances, right? So what is the distinction between fruit and spirit, uh, fruit and, and appearances? Well, one, we have to know that the fruit he's talking about has to be the fruit of the spirit. So we, we, we're going to feel something. We're going to sense God's presence. Secondly, fruit is something that actually provides life to you. Amen. It nourishes your Amen. soul. It, it's not an appearance in the sense, it's not a piece of plastic fruit. It's not a plastic peach that looks right. You take a bite out of it and it changes you. It changes the way you feel. It provides you spiritual energy. So anyone who, who looks at righteousness and says, oh, anyone can fake that, they would make the Lord a liar because he said you can know false prophets by their fruit. You can know a sheep you can know a wolf who looks like a sheep. You can know it. You do not have to be left guessing. You can know it. But you need to know the difference between sheep's clothing and fruit. And so when people are assessing us, let them assess our fruit in the spirit. Let them assess the lives of those who have eaten of the truth that we offer, eaten of the change, of the grace, of the love, and see, are they spiritually emaciated or are they spiritually strong? Are they eating plastic fruit or are they eating real fruit? And then let them taste themselves as, as Revelation says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So I, I, would, I would take issue with that specific aspect of your question. Going back to, uh, not, not you, but sure, the, no, the question, but going back to the question of coercion, how do we define coercion? Well. When we put as the first bullet point on our statement of faith that we eschew all forms of coercion, specifically of coercing conscience, what we're saying, we're not talking about buffeting our flesh internally. We're talking about 
forcing people to do something against their will. And when you have a voluntary society where everyone has the freedom to come or go as they will, you cannot have coercion because they're just going to walk away. When you have coercion is when you deprive people of that freedom to choose their own path. It doesn't mean we're not all committed to crucifying our flesh. Paul said, I buffet my flesh and make it my slave. So we, there is a certain kind of spiritual, we're coercing our flesh to be in subjection to Christ, and we're all helping each other do that. But that's something each one of us has to do. Coercion, in any meaningful sense, cannot ever describe a completely voluntary community. Because you can just walk away. This nation can be coercive because they, they carry a gun and they can forbid me from walking away. They can throw me in jail if I do walk away. But in a, in a, in a fellowship, a society where everyone is here because they want to be here, how can you have coercion in any historic or meaningful sense of the word? You cannot. So what has happened is Christians have taken the limitations of authority which are appropriate to a coercive state and they've cut and pasted those on a non-coercive community. The state backs its commands with the threat of violence. The community does not. So the community cannot be said to be coercive any more than a family can be said to be coercive. In the same way, if, a, if, if the state tells me to brush my teeth because it's better for overall uh, hygiene and everybody prefers the breath and, you know, then that's coercion because their authority is backed by force. So when they tell me to brush my teeth, I, I would come up, I would be very upset. I would say that you're violating my constitutional rights and they would be. We have to limit the state because they have the power to kill us ultimately. But when mom tells me to brush my teeth, I don't say, wait a minute, what about my civil rights before the Constitution? Because my relationship and my love from and to mom totally changes the configuration of authority. And what people are doing is they're taking a, an authority in the church that is sim more similar to mom, and they're superimposing the limits that are appropriate to Caesar on the familial order of church authority. Mom is not going to kill me. <laughs> might think she might, but no. Ultimately, mom is not going to kill me. She's going to make me make my bed, and I'm not going to be able to say, show me in Scripture where it says, you know, I'm going to submit because she's my mom. And the Bible says to obey, obey your mother. But I'm going to submit relationally because I love mom, and mom loves me. And I'm not saying this can't break down. There are terrible examples out in the world of abuse in families and so on and so forth. But parents... Christian parents are generally going to require their kids to do basic things. Bathe, eat, right? And, and that requirement is not coercion. That's love. And so we have to understand which paradigm of authority. When we use coercion, we're talking about the ability to actually force someone to do something they don't want to do. This church, nor any voluntary society, has no such power. Because if... If you pass a rule here that I don't like, I can just walk away. It may break my heart, it may make me sad, but I can just walk away. I can't walk away when a cop pulls me over and tells me to do something. 
if I walk away, I put my life or at least my liberty in jeopardy. That's coercion. Coercion describes authority backed by force. The church uses only relational authority, more similar to mom or dad. Amen. There is a lot here. (laughs) But, you know, well, just one brief thing that I, amen, it was... uh, one of the most misunderstood passages that I know of in the New Testament is when Jesus essentially says, don't worry about the things that I'm saying to you. The Father's not drawing you, you know. Um, you know, that, I mean, that's where a lot of people, you know, they look at that passage and they go, boy, what was Jesus saying here? But it's, it's right in line with this idea of non-coercive authority. Um, the Lord is saying that they are not in any way submitting themselves unto the Father's authority. Meaning that the Father would be drawing them, okay? Meaning that He would be drawing them into a relationship in which they would perceive that the salvation they long for, the change that they want in the inward man, is actually standing right there in front of them. But He's going to tell them, you are drawn away by your own desires. And in fact, you desire to be uh, uh, recognized one to another. You seek the glory that comes from man, not the glory that comes from above. So you got to reframe what he's saying here. What he's saying to these people is he's saying, there's no sense in me sharing any additional thing with you because you are not being drawn underneath true authority, familial authority, the authority of the Father. You are going according to your own course. And so the words that I share with you cannot make their way into the heart. You know, and so much of the church, isn't that kind of what the the church is? I mean, the church, if it's to be a discipleship community, then its members have to be those who are in agreement with an authority that they want in their life, namely that the Lord is the spirit and he is the one who is over his body. And that as he is working in each one of us, we are submitting unto an authority in which God is shaping and changing us. I mean, let me give you an example of how I think commonplace this type of thinking was in the early church and how foreign it is to us today. In 1 Peter 5, um, Peter in his epistle writes to them that they, that Elders or shepherds need to shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but to do it in a way that honors God with, with a fervor and a care for God's people. Because when the great shepherd appears, he's going to give a reward to those who had such a heart for the care of the people. And then he says, young men, though, make sure you submit unto the elders that God has appointed as, as, as care over, over you. And then he says, and mutually, you guys all have to honor and learn to submit one to another. In the very next verse, he says, therefore, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what a confusing passage. I mean, is he just like, all right, next, next principle. Let's, let's jump on to the next thing. No, he, he tells them, submit yourself underneath the mighty hand of God, casting all of your anxieties before him because he loves you and he cares for you. Okay, so what he's saying, and I paraphrase that a little bit. Some people have memorized that passage and are like, boy, doesn't he know how it goes? Um, but in that passage, what he's saying is he's saying, look, when you guys start mutually submitting one to another, and coming into the order of relationships that God has for his church, you're coming underneath the mighty hand of God. You're coming underneath the authority of God as expressed in his body. Now, what is that going to produce in all of us? I think it produced something in a woman going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, didn't it? 
when all of a sudden a word came to her, if you don't grab and take, then you will always, you will never really have what you need in this life. Right? Isn't that what the serpent said? He said, if you don't grab hold of this for yourself, you're, you're never going to have what you really need in this life. And so Peter is saying, listen, when you guys are learning to submit to one another, it's going to produce an anxiety in you. And that anxiety is going to be there because you're going to think, wait, if I do this and submit in this way and I don't grab hold of the things that I need, okay, then who's going to look out for number one? And he says, don't you know that he's the one who cares for you underneath in the context of these relationships, so entrust yourself to those relationships. Isn't it interesting that he says that there's a grace for the humble that do this? But he said, as soon as someone rejects the mighty hand of God, which is the authority brought about in relationships, and steps out as an individualism, who is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking to see the one in whom he can devour? Satan, he's waiting for that one to reject the familial authority of God, this non-coercive authority. Do you have to submit unto the mighty hand of God? No, you could respond to your anxieties, reject the authority that's in your life, and go grab whatever you want. But this is what Peter says, just so you know, right outside that gate, though, is a lion seeking to devour you. Now, I'll tell you, that passage all of a sudden goes, Wow, is that what Peter was talking about? But without the context of the body, without the context of non-coercive authority or familial authority, none of those verses make any sense. Amen. You know, but that is the context. And then, I, oh, you want to jump well, on just, that? Let me jump okay. on that. Just the whole connection there of submitting under the mighty hand of God. Um, you know, look at the juxtaposition here in Hebrews 13, where he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, he didn't just randomly throw that in there. He's saying, Yeshua HaMashiach is what he's saying in Hebrew. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what, in effect, if you put these the thought together, he's saying, remember how God spoke to you, what he did th through these people, those powers, those changes, that transformation is still available. If it was good then, it's good now. But he's describing this as Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then you skip over a couple more and in 17, he says, obey those who have the rule over you. Now, that's not coercion. Because he's already forbid coercion. Paul has, uh, Peter yes. has, amen? amen? But he says, obey those who have the rule over you. In what sense does anyone in the church have the rule over me? Well, the answer in most churches is none. So this is a meaningless statement. But only in the sense in which a mother has rule over a child or a dad has rule over a boy or a, or a daughter. I'm, I'm, I'm watching for their souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable to you. And, and, and the purpose of submission is always to profit the one submitting. It's never to profit the one with authority. Amen. But there is authority. In 1 Corinthians 16, 16, he says, be submitted to those of the household of Stephanus. In Acts 20, 28, he says to be obedient and submitted. So there's got to be this attitude whereby relational authority preserves humility. Amen. And humility releases grace because he gives grace to the humble. That's what he's saying Amen. in that one. Amen. So this apron of humility says, don't let the garb of humility or the apron of humility be stripped from you. You, you. you lose that. 
you lose God's grace. And so the, the independence that hates authority, we've got to reckon with that. But that's just, that's just one little demiurge fighting against God, namely inside of ourselves. But if we can submit to God, submit therefore to God, humble yourself, and He will exalt you. I got to recognize with Paul when he said it to the to the Thessalonians, we praise you that re you received our word, First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.13, I think it is, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God. And he says to the Galatians, you received me as an angel of Christ, as Christ Jesus himself. So there's got to be a sense in which I can see my brother's faults, I can know he's an imperfect person, but I can nonetheless accept God's word from him. That preserves a humility that releases a grace and that grace is what saves me. That grace is what keeps me on the right track. Did, I, did I take you too far afield? No, no, not at all. I've got one thing on, on righteousness. Let me just touch on that one thing real quick. Because, you know, if, if someone's a very, very young child, then maybe they could be fooled by this. And what I'm thinking of is, is maybe walking my two-year-old into a house in which it's got a bunch of wall mounts up. Okay, and wall mounts, I mean a, a massive elk and a huge, you know, bull moose and, and this, you know, big, you know, mule buck deer, you know. And, um, and I could imagine, you know, her walking in and this going like, you know, are, are these, you know, are these alive, <laughs> you know. And, and maybe I could fool her for like, you know, a, a few minutes. But even a two-year-old is going to quickly discern that they're not blinking they're not moving in any way that's... No, they're, 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 their other half of the body isn't in the uh, kitchen, you know. Um, <laughs> this is just a wall mount of, of a real animal, you know. And this is what the appeal is when Jesus says that it's not that the appearances aren't going to look like it's life, but you know that it's not really life. And, and he must be making an appeal that we can really discern things that are living, Amen. right? I mean, think about what Proverbs eleven so, so thirty you're, says. You're saying... You're saying that we can, if we're legalists, if this is all, this is all external, right. then it's really just a wall mount, and, and people lifeless. will be able to de determine that. Amen. It, it Amen. should be quickly determined. Just think about what they have a trouble in robotics. They have a trouble in robotics of creating things that are lifelike because they can't simulate the seamless fluidity of life life movements. Like interruptions I mean, while someone's making a good point in the section. Right. Yes, that's it. That's it. You know, and so Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Amen. Think about what it's saying Amen. there. The fruit of the righteous is itself not a fruit. It's a whole system of life. Amen. It says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Amen. That means what a righteous person is producing is this evergreen Amen. of life to those around it. Isn't that what Jesus said that it Amen. would be like, Amen. you know? And isn't that what Brother Ossie's point was, is that, you know, we know what Jesus was teaching. He's saying, make the tree good and the fruit will be That's good. It. He says, when the tree is a tree of life. Now, isn't it interesting that in Galatians 5, that he says that the fruit of the spirit is all of these things? Why this singular fruit? The fruit. Because the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. It is self-control. It is all of these things. Because guess what? Only one yielded to the Spirit does not gratify the desires of the flesh. Amen. Only someone who has learned to walk by the Spirit can be the fruit of life to all those around them. Amen. And so a community that is living life 
by the Spirit, born of God's Spirit, yielded to the Spirit, are producing a wholeness. Can't we all say that we heard a fiery preacher and then went home with him to have a meal afterwards and found a broken home and him sharp in his tongue and filled with pride and all these things? Didn't we feel as though there wasn't a tree of life, but a compartmentalization? There was a, a part of this man that seemed fiery at the pulpit, but it disconnected from life. Righteousness, when it's true, it is a wholeness of life. Amen. How many people have come Amen. to this community, Brother Ossie, in the last you know, 30 years, and their testimony time and time again is I felt a testimony of wholeness yeah. or life. Yeah. Shalom. The peace, the completeness, Amen. the fullness of life. If God is reconstituting life on this earth through a new creation watershed moment yeah. of a, you know, washing away of the old and constituting something new, Amen. then it has to have the quality of life. Amen. And it, you're, if you're being fooled by this, then you're saying that you're like a two-year-old who can think that a wall mount is, is alive. Yeah. You're better than that. You know the <laughs> difference between these things. Yeah. You're more advanced than that. The only reason you're buying into that potentially is to explain away the consequences of what that would mean for your own life. The honesty it would demand to say, well, if I'm not then a tree of life, then maybe I've not gone all the way to Jerusalem. Maybe I've never made it into that holy of holies where no flesh can dwell, where I would have to die and find a new life found in God. Isn't that the thing that prevents all of us from producing the fruit that we say that we want is the cost is too high. Unless one will lose his life, he will not find life. Isn't that what our Lord was saying? You know, amen. Amen. Can, can I just submit that perhaps <clears throat> that would be a, a, a thought because if you've been a Christian for 15 years, for 20 years, and you've only seen what you've seen, you've only experienced what you've experienced, and to you, it's good. It, it seems like everything's going good. You're with some loving people, good relationships, good sermon on Sunday. You're with a good small group. You're doing some really good things. It, it's sort of to say that there are people that are living complete, completely differently than the way that I'm living um, when I'm actually living a really good, nice Christianity from my vantage point, um, it isn't that for them to say that this is good and true and right in the body of Christ and, and there's this testimony of life and all of these things, isn't that somehow sort of an indictment on what I'm doing? Exactly. And, and, and so this is why I say, we'll come and see. Right. We'll come and see. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, I, I've got nothing, nothing more I can offer really in that context. And maybe come see for yourself and, and you'll see that maybe there's a, a, a different... Uh, a different context. And so, well, um, sin's crouching at the door, <clears throat> what he said to Cain, and it's desirous to devour you, but go and do what is right, and will your countenance not be lifted. That's Amen. the same word to anyone that feels a jealousy over, well, look at what's being produced in them. Isn't that an indictment on me? Well, the Cain spirit said, snuff it out or discredit it, put it out so that its testimony, its word cannot speak. And yet, Abel's blood still speaks to this day a right sacrifice. One who is willing to offer the right sacrifice, it speaks to this day. But now a greater word than even that of the blood of Abel speaks. Amen. That of one who went to the cross, surrendered to the will of God. Amen. 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 You know, I just, I wanted to circle back to the whole, you know, the idea of making it a narrow, prescriptive, uh, tightly defined. 
you know, I would just say that every decent church that I'm aware of, whether evangelical or otherwise, they all have standards. They all have lines that you can't cross, even on modesty. It may be a couple strings on the body, but they've got, they've got some line that you can't cross. So the idea that any church can draw these lines, they even live out. But who decided to draw the line where they draw it? The culture did. Amen. And who decided who would have us draw it somewhere else? I think the Lord would. And, and so the idea that we are drawing a line, they also are drawing a line. Amen. Amen. It may be in a very strange place. They draw the line differently today than they drew it 100 years ago. Amen. Who changed that standard? Did God change it? Did the Holy Spirit? Did Scripture? No, no, no. We all know who changed it. He who is the God of this world, who is systematically destroying Christianity and expelling it, expunging it from this culture. And we reject that cultural trend, and therefore we, direct, we reject the tree that is producing those fruits. Well, this almost seems dumb to ask, but I want to put one last touch on this, only because um, because it always comes at the end of this conversation for me. Okay, so there's no coercion. I get that. But you can't tell me that there's not an inherent coercion in just walking into a place and saying, hey, I like everything about this place, and I want to sort of you know be here and become a part of this community. But... I want to, you know, do whatever it is. I want to wear tight jeans or I want to dress differently or I don't want to do this or I don't like. There's an inherent coercion in conforming to the pattern of a community. Even if Brother Ossie's not making me do it, even if Brother Zach's not telling me I have to do it, even if Kevin's not, you know, hey, you have to, you have to look this way or you have to do this or you have to speak this way or you have to, you know, I'm going to feel like I have to because everybody else okay, is doing it. All right, all right, okay, okay. So coercion, I reject that word. But I'll say there's an inherent pressure. Yeah. And that's the beauty of culture. We would encounter the exact same pressure if we went out into their world. Amen. We would say, oh, I can't go to the beach and not wear their bathing suits. I, I can't go and, and dress like I dress. So every culture, whether a family or otherwise, has that pressure to conform. We just need to know that even imitation is sponsored by the Bible. It's recommended. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But who are your role models? In a church like this, hopefully it's people who, whose faith you can follow, whose conduct you can appreciate and, and say, I want that fruit in my life. So we're going to, it's not coercion. It's an inspiration to imitate. It may even be a pressure to conform, but it's not coercion. The word coercion has to do with force. And I reject, so I reject that word. But the pressure to conform, it's, just compare the difference. Um, <laughs> there are people who live in our, who fellowship with us for years and continue to dress very different, continue to look exactly like the world, and they are comfortable coming to our meetings, hanging out in our homes, being part of this culture. And I would just ask, which is harder for you to, uh, it, it, does it take more courage, in, in essence, to be in a nation of 325 million and look like us? or to conform and look like them. Yes. So if we're talking about the pressure to conform, I acknowledge it, I recommend it, I think it's fabulous, but it's far more of a pressure to look like them than to look like us. Amen. Amen. So do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. 
but be conformed to the image of they his are, likeness. There are, you, there are you, two different scriptures, but excellent. Yeah, yeah right. That be was, conformed was to the image two, of his son. Romans 12 and yeah. Romans 8. Yeah. That's what a church should be, is a place where people walk in and realize, should I be talking like this? He doesn't talk like this. Should I be this arrogant? He's not arrogant like that. Should I... We're supposed to compare ourselves in a legitimate, say, legitimate sense and say, God, am I, am I measuring up? Am I imitating those whose conduct I appreciate? Am I following their faith? Am I imitating Paul as he imitates Christ? Amen.